We're all about being and making disciples of Jesus at Echo. That is the bullseye. That's the reason why we do everything that we do to be part of this church family. We are all about following Jesus and being followers who also have followers. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes, I hope, is to influence your life in such a way that some kind of change happens. Can't change you. But I'm hoping that if I can somehow uh, use the communication gifts that God's given me to the best of their ability, that something in the next 20, 25 minutes will, will cause a wheel to turn in your mind, no matter where you are on your journey uh, with Jesus, no matter where you are, that might actually change your life. I'm actually trying to influence that to happen this morning. We are in part two of a three-part series called How Jesus Changed Everything. There's two major, ta- major holidays throughout the year where churches generally see an increase in attendance. Do you know what they are? What's the first one? Easter, which is right around the corner from us, right? What's the other one? Christmas, okay? So uh, generally, this is when people who might have some form of a a connection to a religion or some type of identification with God or a family member does when they're more likely to come to a place of worship and attend a service. Um, And so at Easter, you know, if you read the teaching in the New Testament about Easter, Easter really focuses on what Jesus did. Christmas looks at who Jesus was. Easter focuses on what Jesus did. So over these three weeks, we're looking directly at what Jesus did on Easter, and we're using those things to unpack this idea of how Jesus changed everything. So over these few weeks, what we're doing is I am suggesting to you, I'm actually arguing to you, that there are a few things that human beings cannot, we cannot live without them. And they are far more intrinsic than even basic things like food and water and oxygen and shelter and clothing. That there are actually some, some innate things that we humans, we, we just can't live without them. And I, I'm arguing that Christianity not only tells us what they are, it shows us how we, it actually supplies those things to us. It tells us what these things are. It shows that Christianity can supply these things to us, and they can supply them to us. Christianity supplies these things to us in a way that no other alter- alternative source can supply. It shows us what we can't live without, why we can't live without it, how it provides these things for us, and how the way Christianity provides these things for us is far and above the way you're currently being supplied with those things. So last week we looked at identity as one of those things. There are other things we won't get to talk about, uh, contentment and, and some other things. But today we're going to look at another one. And to do that, we're going to look at what uh, the, the writer of the Gospel of John, John, uh, writes to us in the very first few sentences of his gospel. I'm going to read it. I'm going to ask you to participate with me, not in reading everything word for word. But one of the ways you can start to, as you're studying the Bible, one of the ways you can start to dial in on what it's saying to you is look at some of the techniques the author is using to try and get something across to you. One of the techniques John uses here for us to look at is a technique called repetition. In other words, a word or a phrase or a literary pattern that is repeated multiple times in a short period of time. If a writer or a speaker or a poet is trying to get something across to you, one of the ways they might do it is by repeating something over and over and over in a short period of time. The two-word phrase I want to dial in on as we read this is the phrase, the word, okay? 
So as we read through this passage, I'm going to be reading the whole thing, but I'll pause when we get up to that phrase, the word, and I want you to just say that in unison with me. When we get there, we'll say the word together. Have I confused you or are you with me? Okay, give me a few more minutes and then I'll confuse you. Here we go. Okay, you ready? We're going to read. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now we'll skip down to verse 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we've seen his glory the glory of the Father's one and only Son. From His abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. So here's the big idea that I'm going after today. We're going to look at another one of these things that I'm suggesting human beings cannot live without. We're going to show you why you can't live without it how Christianity supplies it to you, and how the way that Jesus offered this to us is so much more superior than any other place you could find this. And that thing we're looking at today is meaning. So just before we go hunt Easter eggs, we're going to talk for 20 minutes about a light topic called the meaning of life. Okay? So, so here's the big idea. Jesus offers a meaning for life, a logos, and I'll unpack that in a second. That's not an English word. That's a Greek word. Okay. Jesus offers a meaning for life, a logos, that is not a set of principles that you and I create, but rather a person who we can discover. Okay. Jesus offers you a meaning to your life that's not a set of principles. It's not a clever saying. It's not something that you have to think deeply and cosmically, and an apple falls out of the tree, and all of a sudden it hits you on the head, and you've discovered the meaning of life. Or you watch a Monty Python movie and it unpacks it for you. Whatever it is. Jesus supplies a meaning of life that is not an it. It is a who. Okay? Um, Now, if we're not careful, we could think way too deeply on this. And I understand that I am not the first or the one billionth who have ever tackled this topic all the great thinkers, and I'm not in that category, all the great modern and ancient middle-aged thinkers have tackled this topic. And there is debate about every part of the meaning of life question. In fact, there's even debate about what do we mean when we say meaning? What does meaning mean? So I had to pick and stick a definition for today. Uh, what are we really asking? Here's, here's kind of the core of, if you say I have a meaning for life, here's how you feel. Here's a definition for you. I have a purpose and it matters. I have a purpose for being alive. And that purpose is not just to stay alive and accrue as much as I can until I die and rot. I have a purpose and it matters. And I want to argue with you that every human being needs meaning. And every human being is on some way, shape, or form on a quest to find and supply meaning to their life. Um, but let me illustrate it this way. I don't know how many of us have even thought for 18 minutes about what the meaning of life really means. 
Uh, I uh, recently, not too long ago, I was having lunch by myself at a restaurant over in White Marsh, and there was a young man who was waiting on me. And towards the end of the meal, I could just kind of tell he was really short, not short in height, but he was just short in our conversations. And um, he seemed distracted. He seemed really fatigued. Big, strong guy, but seemed really fatigued and not really into his job that day. And so I thought I'd probably give him a hint that I was picking up on it because, you know, wanted a good, he probably wanted a good tip and everything. So I wanted to give him a hip, hint on I was picking up on this. And about two-thirds of the way through the meal, I just said, I said, man, you doing all right today? He's like, man, I'm just, yeah. He's like, I'm sorry. He's like, I'm just tired. This is my 16th day in a row working at this restaurant. I was like, man. Why are you working 16 days in a row? And he, he says to me, you got to make that paper, man. And then I Googled what that meant, and I understood what he said to me. We, he, I was like, paper making factory? I ordered a burrito. But it meant money. I said, okay. Because I'm pretty connected to the pop culture. Um, you got to make that paper. I said, oh. I said, why? Those bills stacking up? No, nah, just one. Well, what one bill? Just bought myself a brand new car. And then he started to light up. I was like, wow, well, tell me about it. It was brand new. It was loaded, this and that and the other thing. I was like, well, congratulations, man. That's a big achievement. What was the occasion? Got to have a ride to get to work. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me he had not thought through the meaninglessness of his life. And all of a sudden, I understood why he was fatigued. It was way more than working 16 days. He never thought about this. Because here's essentially what he told me in Cliff Notes form. I'm working 16 days in a row because I need to make money. I need to make 16 days worth of money because I need to make a car payment. I need to make a car payment because I need a car. And I need a car so I can get to work. And I need to get to work so I can make money. And I need to make money so I can pay for my car, which I need to go to work so I can make money to pay for the car. Do you understand the cycle here? And when you paint it that way, what is life to him? How meaningful is that? And I wonder if any of us have taken even 15 or 20 minutes ever to ask ourselves the reason why we do anything and everything. Why? When it's all said and done, what have I done that really matters? For what reason do I do anything that I do? Well, maybe you're not like that guy. Well, no, I'm not in that kind of a cycle. I'm more enlightened. Okay, Well, ask any elementary school kid who's a little bit enlightened. Why are you in elementary school? Well, I'm here so I can get to middle school. That's where the real action is. Well, after that wears off, you ask a middle school kid, why are you here? Well, I'm here so I can get to high school. That's where the real action is. That's where the real meaning is. You talk to someone who's been in high school a few minutes. Why are you here? So I can get out of here. I can go live life. Life really begins after high school. That's when I can go to college and study, or I can go get a job, or I can really get comfortable in my parents' basement, or whatever it is, right? That's when life starts. Well, go talk to a college student. Why are you here? So I can graduate, make some paper. If they're at a paper-making degree, or if they're, you know, if other, if other people are just getting money. I want to graduate so I can start, I can go get an apartment, and I can really live life. And you talk to the person in the apartment. Why are you in your apartment? Why are you working? 
so I can save up enough money to get out of my apartment, get into a house. Why do you need to get into a house? So I can get married and really live life. And then you talk to the married couple. What do you do? Well, we're married. We, we're really waiting to have kids. That's when life really begins. And you talk to the couple that just had their first kid. Why are you having kids? So I can get them out of the house. Because that's when life really begins. And then you get them out of the house. And then you talk to the couple who's empty nesters. Well, what are you doing? I'm trying to really save money as fast as I can because kids cost me too much. And I want to retire someday. Well, why do you want to retire? Because when I get there, life really begins. Where are you in that chain? Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you work the hours you work? Why do you spend the money you do? Why do you spend your time the way you do? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever really sat there? Well, I don't want to think that cosmically. Why? Are you scared of what you might come to? Because I'll tell you, all the great thinkers who really started to think about it, almost all of them came to a very terrifying place when they started thinking about it. Aldous Huxley, C.S. Lewis, Voltaire, Shakespeare, Jesus Christ, all the great thinkers who really sat around and thought about why, what's the reason for everything. Some of them came to a really terrifying place and they said, I can't come up with one. There must not be one. Life is meaningless. There's no good. There's no evil. There's no God or no God that we can know. There's no heaven. There's no hell. This is all that there is. Life is meaningless. And that was too terrifying of a thought. So then they said, then we need to supply our own meaning because we can't live a meaningless life. We need to reach down inside of us. Each one of us needs to figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing and live for that. Well, on what basis do you have permission to decide that that's how you can live your life? The only way you can give yourself permission to say there is no meaning, I must supply one, is if you've concluded there is no God who gives us the rules and says here's the meaning. Why do we do some of the things that we do? Why do we live our life? We want justification for every little thing that we do, but we don't ever look for justification for the big things. We need meaning. Got to have it. So since most of us don't think about it, let's think about it for 15 minutes together. Jesus offers all of his followers three things when it comes to the meaning of life. I'll give them all to you right now. Jesus offers all of his followers, number one, a meaning to life that is discovered. He offers a meaning to life that can be discovered. In other words, what I'm saying is Jesus offers you a meaning you don't have to think up. He offers you a meaning you don't have to figure out. He offers you a meaning that you don't have to be a professional philosopher or smart person to get to. You don't have to think cosmically. He offers you a meaning that is objective, that is inhuman, that is above and beyond anything you can think up, that is there for you to discover. He offers you that. Number two, Jesus offers you a meaning to life that is not self-created. He offers you a meaning that you can't create for yourself, that you don't have to create for yourself, and every other meaning that you have created for yourself will fall short of the meaning that Jesus supplies if you will but understand, comply, and align with it. So he offers a meaning that, a meaning that, and then number three, a meaning who. Do you see the change? A meaning that can be discovered, a meaning that is not, that is not self-created, and a meaning who discovers us. Number one, a meaning to life that is discovered. Now, let's go back to what we read earlier. There's a two-word English phrase that John repeats four times in the first four verses. Do you remember what it is? The word. Now, John didn't write in English. What language did John write in? He wrote in Greek. 
Now, there's a few of us that have had some academic Greek training. There's a few of us that have grown up in Greek families and speak Greek. Let me tell you the, the original word, and I got some help from some scholars like Don Carson and Tim Keller and others who have looked at this passage more carefully. Everything I'm telling you this morning is wrapped up in that one Greek word, logos, L-O-G-O-S, from where we get the English word logic. And I want to just let you know that this is not translating logos into the, the two-word phrase, the word is not the best or most culturally appropriate translation of that word. Here's what Logos meant at the time John was writing. There was a major, major ongoing divisive debate among all the Greek philosophers at the time John wrote this letter. And the debate was this. Is there or is there not a Logos? And the word Logos at the time John wrote meant this. A structure or design behind the universe that holds it all up. Or the shortest translation that most scholars agree on, Don Carson being one of the leading ones, says what the word logos more literally translated means the reason for life. The reason for life. And at that time, and you can go back and read about this, the Greek philosophers were arguing, is there a reason for life or is there not? Is there a logos or isn't there? And back and forth and back and forth and back and forth they went and they, they thought and they argued and they thought and they argued. And at the time John wrote this, most of the Greek schools were being filled with despair because this growing conclusion was there is no reason for life that we can prove. There is no design behind it. There is no God who put it in motion. There is no God who sets the rules. There is no meaning. Life is meaningless. There's no good. There's no evil. There's no heaven. There's no hell. When life is over, it ends. You can take nothing with you. And in that sense, you're no different than a rock. There is no logos. Let me illustrate you what logos means. If, um, now, this particular illustration I'm going to use has no value to me. But think about a blow dryer for a second. To some people, a blow dryer is very, very useful, correct? My wife has a blow dryer with this attachment on the end that I didn't understand. It's called um, a diffuser. Obviously, I wouldn't know what to do with it. Um, but she has this blow dryer, and if, if this amazing thing happens. This blow dryer is designed in such a way that if you take this electrical cord and you plug it into the right voltage on the wall, and you turn it on and you use it, the right way, it will make wet hair dry. Amazing. Blew my mind. Um, have you ever plugged it into the wrong voltage if you were traveling overseas? Wasn't designed to handle 220, was it? It'll melt that, you'll melt that joker faster than, it's amazing. Now, if that's working well for you, and my wife came home, and I had drawn my, no, that's not a good illustration for you to think of. Let's that, that, that's not a good one. Um, let's assume you saw somebody taking a bath in the bathtub. And the water wasn't hot enough for them. And they plugged in a blow dryer and they started trying to heat their bath water with the blow dryer. Good idea, bad idea? Bad idea. You would go to that person because that person obviously does not understand the logos of the blow dryer. They do not understand its design. They do not understand its intention. They are taking something that was intended for a different design and they're, trying, and they're misaligning its use with its intention. And what's going to happen? They're going to burn the whole house down. Or they're going to shock themselves silly in the bathtub. 
Or if you plug it into the wrong source, it's going to melt. I want you to understand something. What John is saying right here is simply this. He's saying to all the Greek philosophers, he's dropping the bombshell of all bombshells in the first couple sentences of this letter to the entire thinking community. He says, there is a logos. The logos has always been. The logos was there in the beginning with God. The logos was God. The logos became flesh and dwelled among us and we've beheld its glory. What he's saying is this. There is a purpose and a design for the universe. There is a purpose and a design for your life. And if you will align your life with the grain of the universe, if you align your life with the grain of your purpose, you will finally discover who you really are and reach your true potential. But if you don't, you're going to burn the whole house down there is a logos there's a meaning for your life and there has always been a meaning for your life always there's always been a reason why you're here why you're alive there's always been a reason and you don't have to supply it you don't have to sit down and think deeply about it and come up with it it is yours to discover number two a meaning to life that is not self created what he's saying in verse 5 is that we have this weird he uses light and dark illustration here i really gotta hurry he uses light and dark illustrations here and um light in the bible is a metaphor for truth and and he taught i'm sorry that distracted me everybody okay okay light and light and dark are a metaphor for truth and false good and evil And what he's saying here in verse 5, so much so, I don't have time to unpack it all for you, is this. He's saying human beings have this weird relationship with truth. What he's telling us is that we want truth. We just don't want someone to force it on us. We want truth. We don't want someone to, to push it on us. Now, the main answer to the question that I get outside of probably my circle of Christian friends, when I ask you the question... Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you working 16 hours? Why do you think you need to get married now? Why are you taking that promotion? Why are you downsizing? Why are you buying a bigger house? Why have you stopped hanging out with this person, started hanging out with that person? Why are you all of a sudden volunteering in so many different things? Why are you volunteering less? Why are you protesting? Why are you not protesting? The basic general answer I get, if I asked them long enough, they'd come down to this. Because I'm free to. Because I can. Because I'm living to be free. What are they really saying? I'm living to be and to achieve whatever my heart tells me to be and achieve. That's why I do it. That's why I do with my, that's why I take care of my kids. That's why I work the hours that I do. Because I can. Because I'm free to. I can go buy whatever car I want. And I know I have to work that. That's my meaning to life. And my question to you is this. Who, on what basis have you decided you're free to do whatever you want with the life you have? On what basis can you say, I'm completely free to live how I want? The only way you are free to say that is this. You have to say something else too. You have to say, the reason I'm free to live life how I want, to answer why, however is in my heart to answer, is because there is no overarching logos that tells me what I am supposed to be doing how I am supposed to be living, why I am really here. Because there, if there is a God, a God that I can know, and he or she in people's minds, if he or she, I don't believe the she thing, okay, but listen, he or she thinks, if there is a God, 
and they're giving us the rules, and they've made the design, then I'm not free to supply whatever meaning I want. Then I have to comply with whatever the designer says I need to comply with. And this terrifies people. This terrifies people. They don't like that. They like the idea of saying, I want to be able to live. Here's, here's a problem with that position of saying, I'm supplying my, I'm living life by whatever I want to do. Here's a problem. If you want to be really free, you have to first admit this, that life is absolutely meaningless. And nobody can live that way. In order for you to say, I'm free to do whatever I want, you have to say, there is nobody that assigns meaning to anything. It's all subjective. And that bothers us. If there is a God you can know who tells us how to live, who gives us the rules, then you cannot be free to live however you want to live. On the other hand, if there's no God, or if there's a God you cannot know, then you're free to live however you want. Those are the options. There's either a God that we can know that tells us how to live and we have to comply, or there's no God or a God we can't know, and then we have to live however we want. It can't be both. It's one or the other. And here's my question. Look, one... One great Christian thinker said it this way. Look, if we say I can live however I want, life has no meaning, there's no God, there's no heaven. It's like a John Lennon song. Imagine there's no heaven and no hell. We'll all be people, you know, whatever we are. Good old John, you know, great Christian thinker. Um, If there really is no God and there's no heaven and there's no hell, here's the truth. We're all just going to die and rot pleasant thought before the Easter egg hunt. We're all going to die and rot. That's it. And if that's the case, nothing matters. Nothing matters. Well, that doesn't make sense. There's good and there's evil. Says who? Not if there's no God. Then we all get to decide what's good and what's evil. There really isn't any of that. There's no love. That's just a reaction you have in your mind. You're going to be forgotten. You're going to die and rot and be forgotten. Maybe not right away, but three billion years from now, yes. Whether you were a good person or a bad person, you volunteered a lot or a little, you gave a lot or a little, doesn't matter. It's meaningless. If there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no God, you can do whatever you want. One thinker said it this way. If we're all on the Titanic, and it's going down in five minutes, and it's slowly sinking in the water, and life's going to end as we know it in five minutes, does it really matter if we go down hugging or mugging? Does it really matter in that five minutes if we're going around the boat hugging everybody and saying goodbye or if, you, if someone comes up to you and says, we're going to die in five minutes. Give me your wallet. Well, that's all my life savings. Here you go. <laughs> doesn't matter. Five minutes, I'm dead anyway. Stab me while you're at it, you know. doesn't matter. But in another sense, aren't we all going to die in five minutes anyway? Not literally, but in the span of all eternity. And it raises this tension in our hearts. And if you press this matter far enough, if you want total freedom to live however you want, you have to accept and you have to have a meaningless life. And you're motivated. Why do people hold on to that? Well, Pastor, that sounds so harsh when you put it that way. You're making me feel worse. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Here's why you want to hold on to that position if it's yours. I want to live however I want to live. I don't want to submit or comply with anybody. I don't want truth pressed upon me. Here's why that's a problem. Deep down inside you, you know that that's wrong. But you realize that for you to admit that you're wrong means you have to forfeit all your freedom and you can't live any way you want. So you are motivated to hold on to that position or else you're going to have to change a lot about the way you live and you don't want to do that. 
So you hold on to this idea that there is no God, there is no heaven or hell, because by God, if there is everything, I'm going to have to give up all my freedom for living however I want, and I'm not ready to do that. I don't even want to think about it. But can I just fast forward to the end? The doctrine of meaningless, if you follow it through the end, just doesn't work out. It just doesn't, it doesn't work out. It doesn't make any sense because you're on a collision course with yourself. The doctrine of meaningless just doesn't work out. Why do human beings get offended when you suggest that life is meaningless? Doesn't it bother you when I say, hey, life is meaningless? Doesn't that bother you? Parenting, meaningless. Work, meaningless. How does that make you feel? All warm and toasty? It shouldn't. I have a fever, so I feel warm and toasty, but you shouldn't feel that way. If I say life is meaningless, that should bother all of us. Why? Because the emotional part of you knows that's not true. The emotional part says, no, that can't possibly be true. Life has to have meaning. There has to be good and evil. There has to be a heaven and hell. There has to be some overarching purpose that I can tap into. This can't possibly be meaningless. But the intellectual part of us says, no, 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 no. It has to be meaningless or else I'm going to have to surrender my freedom. I'm going to have to live the way that the designer says that I need to live to comply with it. Don't you see? If life is meaningless, this is the easiest way. If someone says, you know what, life doesn't mean anything. There's no heaven or hell. Then you say this to them. You're saying to me that life is meaningless. Is your statement meaningful? Are you trying to convince me of something? Do you know something I don't know? Have you tapped into meaning? If it's all meaningless, is your statement meaningful? Deep down inside, if you say life is meaningless and I can live any way that I want, there is no logos I have to align myself with. Easter doesn't matter. Christmas doesn't matter. Deep down inside of you, you have to deal with the following tension. You have to say, there is no good, when you know that's not true. There is no evil, when you know that's not true. There is no beauty, there is no ugliness, when you know that there is. There is no right or wrong, when you know that there is. If you start with a premise that says, I'm free to do whatever I want because there is no logos to life, if you start with that premise and you can immediately see, well, there's a problem with that premise. I don't think it's entirely true. Why in the world would you not go back and reevaluate your premise? Why would you not go back and say, maybe, maybe there is a meaning to all this because this just can't possibly work out. Maybe there is a meaning. Maybe there is a logos. And if I just think hard enough, if I just talk to the right smart person, if I just listen to another TED Talk, someone will roll it out for me. But John wraps it all up with a nice little bow for us. He says, no, meaning for life is not some statement that you can get stencil printed on a piece of wood on Etsy and have it mailed to your house and hang it above your kitchen and say every day, that's my purpose. To leave the world a better place. To love my neighbor. To, but it's not a that. It's a who. John says this. If Christianity is true, what's the meaning of life? It's a meaning who discovers us. The logos is not an it. It's a person. The logos is a person. There is a meaning behind the universe. We need to align with it. But it's not an it. It's not a set of abstract principles. It's not an axiom. It's not a statement. It's not a poem. It's a person. If there is a design to all of this, and we know that there is, right? This is not random chaos. There's a design to the world. Don't you agree with that? There's a design. Two of you do? Awesome. I've lost you all. Great. Egg, eggs in five minutes. Eggs in five minutes. Come back to Phil. Come on. 
Pastor, no one's ever made me think like this before. Well, it's about time someone did. You deserve better than to just go through life, wash, rinse, dry, repeat, wash, rinse, dry, repeat, because at some point you're going to stop and you're going to say, I've just been wash, rinse, drying, and repeating for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Why am I doing all this? I'm trying to short that conversation to right now. I'm trying to bring you right here. You won't find it sitting down under a tree and having an apple hit you on the head. Your meaning, your logos has come and discovered you. If there is a design to this world, and we know that there is, if there's a design, there's also a what? There's a designer. And in our case, the designer tore a hole in the top of his design and repelled his way down into it. And he has written himself into your story. And he's written himself into my story. He is the Logos. And what, the, what's, what that says to us on the one hand is, that's crazy. If there is really a reason, and it is Jesus Christ, then I need to align myself with the way I was designed. And if I plug myself into the right source and I'm used for the right purpose, I'm going to reach my full potential and life will be good for me. If on the other hand, if I don't align myself, if I go against the grain of how I was created... Life will be meaningless to me. And it's terrifying because on the one hand, you know, the modern thinking is there is no freedom without sacrificing all of your meaning. But Jesus says, sacrifice this idea of freedom and come to me and align yourself with me and then you'll really find freedom and you'll really find meaning. And it sounds so counterintuitive to how we think, and this is what John was trying to get at the center at. John writes most of the, the poignant stuff about the Easter story in all of the Gospels, and he starts the whole narrative off by saying he went to the cross because he is the Logos. He is the reason. He has always been. He always will be. And the Logos didn't just stay on some sign on Etsy. The Logos became flesh, and he dwelled among us, and we've beheld his glory. And if we walk with him every day upon day upon day, there is blessing upon blessing upon blessing. If you align yourself with the Logos, you will sail. I know some of you have sailboats. I don't. But you can take that sailboat and you can put it out in the bay and you can align that sail with the wind and you can sail and you can have a great afternoon. None of us in our right mind would take that sailboat down on Bel Air Road and try and sail out there. You see, you have to be aligned with your logos in order for you to understand who you really are. So what Christianity offers you is a reason and a meaning for your life that you can discover. You don't have to go think it up. You don't have to conjure it up. You don't have to prove it. It offers you a meaning that's always been and always will be. It offers you a meaning you don't have to create for yourself because anything, anything you create for yourself won't help you face life or death. Well, pastor, I want another alternative. I'm not ready to surrender to Jesus. Okay, but you need meaning, right? So you're going to have to supply your own logos. So what is it? Beauty? You'll wrinkle eventually competition somebody will do it better wealth you'll die and rot can't take a penny with you anyway you see there's no other logos you can supply for your own life that offers you what the logos of jesus offers you he can he can make things matter now and in the great beyond both sides of that none of those other things will help you tackle life and death so let me read to you one last time as our worship team comes a few thoughts from the beginning of John inserting the translation for 
Logos into the text. In the beginning, the reason for life already existed. The reason for life was with God. And that reason for life became a human being and dwelt among us. And that reason for living gave life to everyone and brought light to everyone. And we have seen his glory. What's your meaning? You were built not just to honor a principle. You were built to know and to love a divine person. What's your meaning? Why? To know and to love Jesus. Because when you know and you love and you serve Jesus, you find out more about how he built you. You learn what he built you for and you comply with him. And you submit to him. And you sacrifice the freedom of doing whatever you want. And you gain the freedom of being found in Christ. It's exchanging one tarnished version of freedom. Which is really not freedom. It's really bondage. For an eternal freedom. That no man, woman, or child can rip away from you. And it's only through having a relationship with Jesus that you can find out who you really are. Last week we talked about identity. Every single one of us needs a durable sense of who we are and what we're worth. Every one of us deserves to know who the core us really is, and it doesn't change from time to time and season to season, scenario to scenario. I hope you see that what Jesus did at Easter changed that for us. I hope you also see that when Jesus came at Christmas, when he entered the world, when he entered into our story and he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death we deserve to die on the cross and he rose from the dead and he was alive and he appeared to people for four days and he rose to heaven. That, that heaven, that entire encapsulation of his story means that you and I have meaning. We can, we don't have a God we cannot know. We have a God we can know. How? Through Jesus Christ. I want to offer you the opportunity to connect to that meaning, that person right now. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Many of us, I dare say most of us that are here today, at some point in our life made a decision to forfeit our freedom of living however we wanted to live in order to surrender to and align ourselves with the true meaning to our life, and that is Jesus Christ. He made us to be with us, plain and simple. He made you with the intention that you and he would be forever inseparable. That's the meaning to life. Anytime we take the life that we give us and we use it to put a wedge between us and our designer, we're going against the grain of how we are created. And it leaves us feeling a sense of dissatisfaction, being stuck in cycles that promise us some measure of contentment or freedom or joy but they're short-lived and they're fleeting. It's bread that spoils. Only Jesus offers us bread that never spoils. Only Jesus offers you contentment that the world can't take away. Only Jesus offers you identity that when you have success, it won't go to your head, and when you fail, it won't destroy you. Only Jesus offers you meaning that just says you are known and you are loved and you exist to know him better and to align with his purpose for his life, and to sail with him. Only Jesus offers that. No one, nothing else does. My invitation to you is, are you ready to align with the designer today? 
if you are. That next step is as simple as a prayer that I follow, a kind of a, a structure of A, B, C, admit, believe, choose. We admit that we're sinners. What do we mean by that? We admit that we have aligned our life so far with the way we think it should be. We have not aligned with the designer. And that choice is a rebellious choice, and that's called sin. And then we move to that B part. That's believe. We just simply confess we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh, the God-man, who lived the sinless life we should have lived, who died the death we deserve to die, and who rose from the dead victorious on Easter. And see, we choose his lordship. That's what I was talking about today. We choose to surrender, to comply, and to align with his lordship. That's what this means. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus. All the demons in hell believe, but they don't comply. They believe in his existence, but they don't align themselves. There's no salvation there. But if you believe in Jesus... If he is who he says he is, then our choice is to comply because he's the designer. Pastor, that sounds like torture. That sounds like jail. No, it doesn't. If it does, I've completely not described it. It is freedom like you've never tasted. Don't listen to those lies of the enemy. What you get back, what you get back far outweighs it all. And there are hundreds of people here today who would testify to that. Let's pray together. If you're ready to make that decision to align your life with the designer, I want to lead you in a short prayer. You can pray right where you are right now. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe in you, Jesus, in your life, your death, your resurrection. I accept forgiveness for my sins. I give up the freedom of living life however I feel like it. And with great relief, and with great anticipation and excitement, and with great joy, I choose you to be my Lord and to align my life with you and to taste true freedom and know my real meaning. Thank you for saving me. Amen.